0: Hey guys, it's Josh Horowitz here, and welcome to another episode of Happy Said Confused. I am indeed able to say another episode because we've made it to the coveted second episode in this ongoing series. I'm excited. Uh, We got the first one out of the way. It was a fun one with Kate Mara, and today is a really cool one uh, with one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, You know, growing up, about 20 years ago, he came out of nowhere and really inspired truly a generation of young filmmakers uh, with his amazing film El Mariachi, and he followed it up with films like Desperado and launched franchises like the Sin City franchise and uh, Spy Kids and Machete. He's done it all. He is, of course, Robert Rodriguez, and he came by my office the other day to chat about a lot of things, including his early days uh, in terms of getting started in movies and the choices he made, the path he uh, went on and and the way he really made his own way, he created his own studio, working out of Austin, and has now uh, risen to such a level that he's actually got his own television channel, which is crazy. How many people can say that outside of Oprah, right? It's called El Rey. And uh, we talk about that and uh, the fact that it's launching with a really high-profile cool series based on one of his own films. Of course, From *Dust Till Dawn, which is the film that made George Clooney who he was. And we get into that. We talk about how George uh, became the star of that one and how it really elevated him. So a lot of cool stories about Clooney, about Quentin Tarantino, Robert's really good friend, about Sin City, future projects, and and also just some inspiring words about... uh, kind of charting your own path and trusting your instincts and and not going the typical Hollywood route in forging a career uh, as a filmmaker. Uh, I think it's inspiring stuff for any uh, aspiring filmmaker. He really, he literally wrote the book. If you haven't read Rebel Without a Crew, uh, that's a great read uh, by Robert Rodriguez. But before you get to the book, why not just listen to the man himself, uh, Robert Rodriguez and me on this episode of Happy, Sad, Confused. And of course, if you like what you hear, tell me what you think on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. Uh, Make suggestions, ask me questions, uh, tell me who you think you want to hear on the show. Uh, It's your uh, open invitation to be a part of the process. So without any further ado, here he is, a really cool guy, a really great filmmaker, Mr. Robert Rodriguez. I remember we, we spoke about that a year ago in Sundance, and it was the 20th anniversary of El Mariachi, and, and obviously you're kind of like the king of the the DIY, the guy that really literally sold his body to make a movie, and we're we're now at a point where you're you have like literally four different franchises at least uh, by my count, <laughs> and you have your own channel. <laughs> it's like you can't go from one more more of one extreme than another. Does it does it boggle your mind when you kind of think about where you're at today versus where you started? It is pretty. It is pretty crazy. But um,
1: the twenty-year mark is actually really, really cool because you kind of see what you've been doing for twenty years and where you tend to want to go, and to have a network kind of makes sense of the last twenty years. A lot of what work that I had done in uh, making films that had a little more of a diversity in front of people in front of and behind the camera, and seeing that there was a need for that on television, right? And a network, in particular, to have that and be able to do that. Now, for the next twenty years, for other people to be able to get other filmmakers and other young voices in there, give them an opportunity to have shows on television where they never probably could have gotten into the regular system because it's just so closed doored. Right? Um, kind of made a lot of sense, you know, when you broke it up that way. Otherwise, if you just look at it, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. It's like, wait, now you're doing television, but then when you kind of try to connect those dots, yeah, no, of makes make some sense. Yeah, but, but um. But I didn't know what I was doing when I first signed up for the network. I didn't make that connection until after I got it, because I started this journey about three years ago. Right. And uh, I just thought, well, let me try it and see what happens. And then it kind of lined up with the 20-year thing, and then it kind of lined up and really making a lot of sense. But at first, sometimes you just got to take a leap of faith when your hand goes up. When they said, do you want to try and get this network? And right. My hand went up, and I remember going what do I want to do that for? Right. Why? Why? That makes no sense. I got a film career. Why do I want to
0: suddenly it, move to television? It does make and sense for your career sense. because I mean that's literally like at every stage. That's sort of how it was done. You kind of figured it out on the fly and made it work.
1: Figured it out when I started my own movie studio. We, we built it in Austin, very yeah. different from other studios, yeah. and it, it became really highly innovative because we were always trying something new. Because we we're just so far away from Hollywood that we didn't even know we were doing the wrong thing and it turned it into the right thing. You know, coming up with digital three D shooting digital begin with so early green screen movies like Sin City shot digitally. I mean, it was really ahead of the curve. So I thought, let's put a network there and see what happens. I bet we'll probably build it differently. Like I just showed you how I'm able to watch the set from wherever I am and be a part of those shows. That's I don't know anybody else who has it. I just kind of made that
0: up. Yeah, so for those that are just listening to the podcast, so Robert really just showed me this. So he's showing me right now, basically on his iPhone, he has, a, I don't know, an app, something you guys have like created. Something
1: I made over the holidays, about some equipment and a modem, and I get the A camera and B camera, and sometimes if there's a C camera, feed of what they're actually shooting live <laughs> on my stages there at Trollmaker so that if I'm here, yeah. an actor that you know I really wanted to be on the show that I'd to come down is there, and I'm here. Yeah, I can I literally watch the performance, text in any ideas. It's crazy. Or, uh, it's
0: really, really so, cool. So I'm curious. Like, uh, we're gonna cover a lot of stuff, uh, including obviously what El Rey's up to and from Dust till dawn. But I'm curious. Like, early in the, relatively in the early stages, like you clearly made a decision early on to like make your home where you where you were and try and build that studio and see what, how big it could get and how it could grow. Um, was there, like, I can't even, I'm trying to, I, when I was looking at your filmography, like, it feels like you never even, s- sell out is the wrong term, but, like, you never even tried, like, a studio film. maybe the faculty was the closest to kind of, like, working on their terms a little bit.
1: Um, the faculty, I remember, that was a, that was a, I worked for the Weinstein, so it was very different from a regular studio. Right. They were really independent, they were out of New York, so they didn't care that I was in Texas. So they yeah. let me just do my thing. I remember the faculty was one where I, I just had this crazy idea, I went to Bob Weinstein, he was always trying to get me to do one of his pictures. And I said, if you green light four of my, five of my pictures, I'll do one of your choice. <laughs> and he was Morgan. like, I'll take that yeah. deal. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, five, five for me, one for him. So he gave me, uh, so I did that one for him. Yeah. And it was a good way for me to just start Production in Austin, and try to get the crews up to speed and build my studio out there. Yeah, because uh, the next movie was going to be Spy Kids, so I needed them to have a practice kind of film. Right, and that's what the faculty was. But so, uh, but yeah, as far as studio big studios, I had so much freedom working independently at, at the at you know like a Weinstein Company or Miramax that it was hard to take a studio job. A lot of times you're just the director right. for hire. And they'd bring you a script, sometimes a great property. I mean, it could have been Superman, it could have been Wild Wild West, they brought me the X-Men once. But the scripts were early in the early days. Right. They needed a lot of work. So you thought, if I'm going to put that much work into fixing something that needs a lot of fixing before it's ready to go, I should be putting that work into something original. Really sure. go like the George Lucas route. Instead of getting the rights to Flash Gordon and doing it for a studio, Create your own. go write Star Wars, you yeah. know, something like that. So that's how I created so many franchises, because... I went that route instead of just directing a big
0: movie. And you kind of circumvented, as you say, kind of that, that insane, as we know, development process that can, you can get it can too many chefs in the or... kitchen and you're your own boss and can, and you get that kind of immediate gratification. You can, be, you can be shooting tomorrow if you want to with a friend that's in town. I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of that simple.
1: I got some directors working on my show with, um, on Dust Till Dawn right now who went through that. They made one big movie mm. and then studios won them and they're developing stuff. But they haven't directed for two years, yeah. waiting for that thing to be ready. So I'm like, hey, while you're waiting, come shoot something for me. Yeah. <laughs> come to my studio, I'll be ready to go. And it's, that's what the network will, will be for people, where we have a direct pipeline into people's homes. So think about that as a filmmaker, you're only creating IP, you're creating product to then take to a studio or a network to distribute. Right. But if you're your own distributor, that's a, nobody really has their own distribution channel where you can go right directly into, we're going to be in 40 million homes this year, and try it out in the audience. So instead of me taking it to the executives and saying, what do you think? Is it ready for prime time? I give it to the audience and say, is it ready for prime time? <laughs> you were the guys that matter, actually. They decide. Yeah. They're the ones who matter. And if they really dig a show, we keep it on. If um, they don't get the show, but we're still passionate about it, we keep it on anyway because we can until people catch up to it. You know, So it's uh, it's pretty cool that um, we have that kind of freedom. And it's really enticing the filmmakers to come sure. make this show because we're not going to put them through a whole pilot thing where it might not go or we commit to a series and they can go direct right to series
0: so um, i mean one of the early marquee ones obviously is, is from *Dust till dawn which is so exciting because i mean like uh, one of your early films that i adored i love it it's one of those films that sucks you in <laughs> it um it's uh so let's talk uh, first i want to talk about like the origins of that film a little bit and then i want to talk about the series if we could so Um, I mean it was you and Quentin obviously I think it was the first collaboration right of what's probably the third already by then I'd already worked with him in Desperado
1: we did four rooms Mm -hmm. on the set of four rooms he said you gotta do Dust Till Dawn because it's something that I wrote for some guys some effects guys and uh, I was supposed to be you know just some Couple of brothers go to this bar, and it turns into a vampire bar. But I felt so in love with the brothers characters that it, I, I delayed them getting to the bar for about half the
0: movie, which right. made it
1: impossible to finance. Nobody wanted to make it because it was two movies in one. They thought it was completely wrong. The script, but and that's what Pulp makes it of course. Just came like, out. Yeah and now they want to make anything that I do. So now suddenly what was a detriment to the script, now everybody looks at it and goes, oh, it's wonderful, it's genius, it's two scripts in one. <laughs> so he said, now's the time to make it, and you're Mexican, and it takes place in Mexico, so you should do it. Amazing. So I thought, well, let's, let's go do it now before, you know, they close the candy store. I mean, we can do it right now, this is the time to do it. So we went and we made it, and it uh, became a, kind of like a strange cult film.
0: You know? Absolutely, I mean, and one of the many cool things about it is, is you, I think he would probably agree with this, you, you made Clooney's film career. I mean, Clooney, for the first time when you saw him in that film, he was a movie star. He owned the screen and was so freaking charismatic. It was insane.
1: It was, you know, really by design. You know, we looked at the uh, for an actor for that, and you know, you looked at the actor list and it was just a guy. A lot of guys that were really great, but you would just seen him do that role so much. I was really like, for something fresh, and I had seen George on ER, but it was really kind of hard to see him. They always shot him from really far away, and he's always had his head down. Was like, <laughs> That guy, maybe that guy, but I can't really tell. Then I saw him on a, on a news interview, and he didn't like the interviewer. He was sitting kind of brooding like that. I was like, there's something about that guy. So I called him and he came to meet with me in my house. And he rode up on his Harley and he was really totally cool. I said, oh, this guy's like a man's man. I said, yeah. okay, you're going to do this movie for me. I'll give you a starring role. And I'm going to shoot you completely different than you've been shot because you should be shot like from the camera low with a lens. And I'm going to have you looking almost right into the lens all the time so that you really direct to the audience and really overpower the audience. And you won't get a movie roles off of this. And he had uh, two movies before that one even came out. I would show it to executives and people around town before the movie came out. And he booked Batman. He booked yeah. one fine day and Peacemaker,
0: and also the races since then. Yeah. So it was was that a, was that a battle at all to get him uh, for the financiers or whatever to get Clooney considering? I mean, he was hot off of ER, but he hadn't proven himself in film at all.
1: Yeah, the draw was mainly that Quentin had just done Pulp Fiction, right. so that was and it was a low budget movie. We made it for like ten million dollars, so um, we already had Harvey Cattell. And he was actually the, the marquee name. Harry Kattell sure. was the first name on the on the billing block. Um, so we were kind of cool. In fact, Quentin we thought about the, the casting, how different it was. His idea for the casting would have been Robert Blake as his brother. So George was actually, you know, much more in the public, uh, you know, consciousness. Sure. Than
0: Blake was. So we were fine that way. And oh, was it? Uh, were you cool with Quentin playing that role? Was that part? Of that was my thing? idea. Yeah, how I was, was there with him.
1: Uh, I had already done Desperado with him. And I said, um, "Well, let's do it." But you got to play Richie because I bet I could get something really cool out of you for that. So he was down for that. You know, any actor who has a director that believes in them will go and do it. I don't think he would have, you know, assumed that he would play that right.
0: role, but because I was into it.
1: And you look at it, he did give an amazing performance. Yeah, yeah, was yeah, really good.
0: an opposite. Let me Kalonian Keitel. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> okay, so the series is uh, explain it to me. It's kind of an extrapolation, a little bit of the of the film, right? Over well, when uh, he over told me season
1: to take over the the show. I mean, the movie and um, bring my my thing. I was looking at it and going, well, it takes place in Mexico, but there's really no reference to Mexico other than the fact that they drive it to Mexico. Um, if it was set in a bar and there's vampires, maybe there's something in Aztec or Mayan mythology where there's something vampire-like. Vampires even then had already played, been played out quite a bit um, that can make it different. So I looked, and I found some really cool stuff. I found, like, this cult that had snakes that um, worshipped the sun, and they would sacrifice people to keep the sun coming up every day. The blood is what kept the sun coming up, and sure enough, they would sacrifice. The next day, the sun would come up, so <laughs> they kept at it. And um, so I had Salma come out in a snake dance, and I put this pyramid in the back at the end shot just to, because there wasn't a lot of place in the script to put in anything about that. Right. But I did leave this sort of, you know, P- Planet of the Apes-type ending shot where you look and you see this pyramid that really got people's imagination like oh it was on top of a temple and there must have been some other story there but you didn't know what it was and i always did want to kind of revisit that i thought it was cool to explore that more so when we were doing the network i thought um it wouldn't be a great idea to do a show a new show no one's heard of on a network no one's heard of (laughs) better to do um something that would get attention that people would have to seek it out and then they would discover the network right and um, Dustal Dawn was such a popular title with fans. Quentin and I get that all the time. People coming up saying, no, oh, watch Dustal Dawn. Sure. It's on TV. It's, and um, I thought that's a good one because it also it fits the identity of the network. You know, it being almost like a U.S. Hispanic network where it's really entertaining. But for those who are, who are looking, you can see there's a lot more diversity being offered because it leads you right into Mexico and um, explores a lot more of those myths right. and the mythology. So we almost had to retell the original story in a much more expanded way where if the film was the short story this is the novel got it and you get a lot more char- new characters different things happen to the other characters and you set up that you know mesoamerican mythology because that's what's going to carry the following season so you almost had to retell it in a much bigger way mm. um, and it's really cool to take it and dissect it um, like in the film for instance there's a scene where george clooney comes back with some kahuna burgers right um, they were famous in pulp fiction sure. <laughs> So I was like, "What happened to him? What did? He, where? How did he get? It? What did he encounter when he went to the Kahuna Burger? What near death experience happened? That, that getting the burgers was a big <laughs> hassle, actually. <laughs> That's a whole episode. Sure. You know? So we get to go on this whole offshoots that add a lot more story to it and just kind of fun stuff. And uh, and then it's a lot darker, and, like crazier.
0: So yeah, I mean, I, from the materials I've seen, like I don't know what your boundaries are in terms of. I mean, it looks pretty bloody and pretty intense. Like it
1: gets it gets." there you know it really starts off um intense and then gets and ratchets it up but really what's necessary for the story it's almost like we can kind of do anything you know every network has its own guidelines right and um my guidelines i I wrote them down somewhere i can't seem to find them (laughs) but (laughs) But, um we have some guidelines that we follow i think but uh really it's whatever's on it's for the story yeah we don't we won't just push the envelope just for the sake of doing it because the story is really great those characters are amazing we never have seen Quentin Tarantino characters on TV. We held the rights back from anybody that ever wanted to make the show before. So
0: this is the first time you get anything like that. Have you, since it was partially his baby, talked to Quentin about what you were doing with it? Has he had any notes or thoughts? Or- he thought it was,
1: he's like, when did you come up with that? You know, coming I to someone and they I said, man, the whole thing's going to take place from dusk till dawn. It's going to be like 10 hours, you know, 10 episodes. And I'm um, going to do this with a story. And, and I've just been thinking about it for the past couple of years when I came up with the network. And... Um, I wrote the pilot to kind of show how we would right. take a scene, break it out into a whole episode, and then got a writing room together, and we cranked out some really amazing scripts. Every time a script would come in, i go, now I want to direct that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been directing a bunch, of I've been directing said. a bunch. I directed uh, of the eight we've done so far. I've directed four of them.
0: So it's funny, because it contrasts a little bit, like, your buddy, who I think you count as one of your best friends, Quentin, right? Like, and his, his approach to filmmaking in many ways similar, but he also, like, he, he, the, in terms of output... You've you've got to beat there. You like you know you're, you're you're working like every week. It seems like on a different project. He's hilarious. And,
1: he was, he would say yeah that I work you know too 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 often on stuff. He would say that you know I'm not I'm not a you know I'm not at the races, man. I'm take my time. Right. I'm a lot <laughs> and, and he does. He goes and like, he writes something for sometimes years and it's flawless. And yeah, it's just
0: really great. Did he show you that that infamous hateful eight script that's been floating around? Uh, I'm sworn to secrecy. Oh man, that yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's awesome. He hasn't. I mean, he he is
1: probably he one doesn't of the best write writers. Yeah. You know what? It's so weird to walk around his house and see pieces of, I know what his writing looks like, because he writes it by hand, see pieces of loose paper that have full writing on them. Yeah. And I'm like, what's this? Oh, that's something I started. And it's was like, Sh- can I just like, <laughs> I'll just go expand this into a show.
0: Uh, speaking sure. of a TV, there was talk that, um, I don't know if this would be for L. Rey or something else, or your involvement, but is Sin City going to be a TV project as well?
1: Um Weinstein's want to make it, but that they've always talked about wanting okay. to do a TV show. It's kind of up to Frank and okay. myself, but we want to finish this next film first, right. which comes out in
0: August. So, so I want to ask you a album. little bit. I know you're, you don't want to give the whole Ken and Kaboodle away right now, but um, a couple of things on, on Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, mm-hmm. right? Very cool. So um, was it tough getting Mickey back? Because Mickey was pretty tough in terms of, like, the makeup. He was always talking, like, you know... The makeup was pretty much a bad It was. I mean,
1: he is kind of claustrophobic. So to be in the makeup for that long, and he was right. You know, he was like, how come they haven't made advances enough to fix this makeup <laughs> thing? And I said, you know what, that's a good thing. Or we'll tell them that you're only going to do it if they can get the makeup down in 30 minutes. Yeah, and So you I did. told Greg and Nicotero, you guys must have some way to just get him in and out of it and he thought about it and he figured you know what If we pre-painted the thing they got it down to probably like 45 minutes to an hour gotcha and um, and that was much better you know there's no reason to sit in the chair that long for makeup to be done over and over and they figured out a way to do it especially with Mickey
0: I'm excited about your choice for uh, for your dame because uh, Eva Green uh, is like she's one of these actresses that in every film she like she uh, speaking of like Clooney like pops off the screen yeah. and always is like invariably the best thing in maybe sometimes not a great film like she's the one that kind of like
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that she knows, because she she really is. And yeah. I didn't know till I actually worked with her. Because um, you don't know, a lot of it's sometimes a leap of faith. I'm always a big fan of hers, but then you bring them in and you go, let's see, That's weird, we're on the green screen, and it's, the, it's the title character. Can she do it? Yeah. And she came in and she was just awesome. You could not take your eyes off of her. Every take, I mean, it's flawless. Yeah. flawless. i never
0: seen anybody like that. Does it feel... Um is it going to feel to the Sin City fans of the the original film that this is does it feel like a markedly different kind of storyline and a different kind of approach or does it feel very much in line with the way you did the first one It's cool, it feels like part of the other stories
1: because some of the stories intersect with the other ones, but you can tell there's an evolution yeah. in the way it looks I mean, it's, it's we shot it in digital 3D um, we pushed it even more towards the book, the look of the book because the movie was kind of halfway between the book and the movie I didn't know how far to push it back then right. I didn't think audiences would be able to you know, get the stylization. It just may, may be too weird and stylized, but they dug it, so we can go further. You know, gave us the permission to go more towards the book. If anything, it looks more like the book. If you really compared the book to the film, you'd see that it was more like a film than the book. Um, so we could go further this time.
0: Cool, and yeah, bring in people like Justin Gordon-Levitt and- uh, Yeah, and it was the really cool awesome. to see them come into that world. You
1: tell love to do a film noir, but they usually just play too nostalgic. But this being so like, you know, postmodern noir it it really works much better and for someone like
0: Joe who I've I've talked to many times over the years and like this was perfect for his like kind of love of the aesthetic and like his again like he's so curious about the technology and how you do it he must have been like hit in a candy store on your sets yeah
1: he wanted to see how this whole green screen thing worked and we moved so fast I mean he shot out he's, he's in one full story of his own and we shot him out in four days and he was like I've never shot this fast <laughs> before. Because <laughs> you could do with a green screen, yeah. you could just move the camera. You so, what? No, I think I, in this shot, you're gonna be getting up out of out of a. Full of water in the street. The camera is going to be actually underground, <laughs> scraping the ground because we're on a green screen. You're on a table. It's going to come up underneath you, and that would take forever to set up out if you're out in the street. And you know, we just do it like in ten seconds.
0: I'm curious, like I, you know, I've read up uh, on you, and I think we, we share like at least a couple filmmakers that we both probably grew up on and worshipped, like people like John Carpenter and stuff like that. But like, I mean, are there are there filmmakers today that? Do you still get inspired by the old masters or are there new ones or the, the younger ones? Anyone kind of like inspire you in any way today?
1: Both, both. I started this series for the network called The Director's Chair. It's kind of like an inside the actor's studio but for directors. So either me, myself or another director will interview another director nice. about the craft. So I just did a, like a three hour interview with John Carpenter. I mean, And, um, and when I was talking to him, you've seen the show, I actually asked him questions from other directors as well. In one segment, I um, email out friends. Some of them are younger directors. Who also want to ask him so you know i love what they do and they worship john carpenter too so it's a nice sharing of ideas you hear that john likes their work and it's kind of cool you know i think um it's going to be a cool series you know i'll have different directors direct, uh, interview each other and, and uh, you really get that inside baseball type look at the at the craft yeah it was but, funny. Um, i'll sorry go ahead. i keep i keep a yeah, relationship with a lot of young filmmakers who are up and coming and that i keep track of that you know i want to work with and trying to guide them through sometimes because that that happens. You see somebody make a great first film, right? Like an El Mariachi type thing, um, or like a Reservoir Dogs type thing, and then they go to make their big studio movie and then they're left in development hell for right. years. And I try to make sure they always know that that could happen. Always have a backup plan so they can just go make
0: do what they do best and shoot. Do you, when you look back at, again, kind of circling back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, how much of it was luck and how much of it was having a specific plan of how you wanted to kind of like see your career grow in the first few years.
1: Uh, that's a good question. Um, people sometimes say were well, you really lucky? And of course there's a lot of luck plays into it, but you got to you got to be someone you got to put yourself in a position where luck can not happen. Right. You're not I wouldn't have been lucky if I hadn't done the work and gone and actually shoot a film and put it out there. Yeah. Because if you don't go make the move, you're not nothing's just going to come sweep you out of the chair. I mean you got to you got to move forward. And then it always goes a way that's different from what you ever could have imagined and usually always for the better. You just can't beat momentum and movement forward. Even if you fail, you you will invariably find that there's several keys to more success in the ashes of that failure. Totally. Because you've just made a move that got you someplace, an experience that you never were before, and you figure out the next thing, and you couldn't have gotten to that thing if you didn't go
0: down. First, right. fiery flames. <laughs> <laughs> you've you luckily avoided the fiery flames. It feels like there was never like a huge, I mean, you know, there everyone have been had some really good bumps, ones,
1: but not. And some people, I mean, I remember one person said, okay, you're really positive, but what do you do when you've just wasted a year and a half of your life doing something and you went the wrong way? I said, well, that's a real negative way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you rephrase the question? Right. Yeah. I learned a good lesson the hard way. I said, that still sucks. <laughs> you got to be more positive than that. When I made Four Rooms, Quentin said, do you want to do a movie with me? It's, it's, it's going to be four directors, and, and uh, it all takes place in one room. And I, my hand went up right away, because I just felt instinctually I should just take that project. Sure. Now, should I have not raised my hand so quickly? Should I have done the research and seen that anthologies never work? Right. In fact, they bomb terribly, no matter, even if it's Scorsese yeah. and Coppola. And New York Allen. stories, yeah. They yeah. do not go anywhere. Yeah. But I said, yeah, anyway. And so I asked the person, should I have rethought my answer? Should I have done the research first and then given a more thoughtful answer instead of going completely on instinct? And they go, uh... And <laughs> I said, um, no, it's good to go on instinct, because that movie bombed terribly. Yeah. But if you look at the ashes of that failure, you see that when I was on the set, I noticed that Antonio was dressed so nice in a tuxedo, and he had an Asian <laughs> wife, and he had two little kids also dressed in tuxedos because it's New Year's Eve, and I thought... What if they were spies and the kids didn't know? And they got captured and it was on the set of four rooms that I came up with the Spy Kids franchise. There's four of those now. And your biggest and, franchise by far, yeah. That's one. Two, anthologies never work. And after that I thought, I always love anthologies but they never work. Maybe we just didn't do it the right way. I'm gonna try it again. Why would I even try it again after that failure? But I figured
0: out how to do it. And with the same and, guy no less, Quentin. And I did it on Sin City and that
1: was, that was Sin City.
0: Yeah. Um, and speaking of anthologies, I don't know if you would term uh, Grindhouse that way as well. But I mean, I'm, surpri- I'm surprised that hasn't borne out. I mean, obviously it gave birth to Machete. For- I mean,
1: there you go. I mean, you're know, like, how come that didn't do what it did? But it's, it was, we knew that going in. We go, okay, this is probably way too much movie for somebody. Would you even go see a double feature if it was even Spielberg and Lucas? Probably not. Because it would right. be like, that's kind of strange. But we just really felt like doing it. And uh, and a lot of things came from that. I mean, you saw that aesthetic of the Grindhouse film. It still goes on today. I mean, everybody does what commercials even look like. And yeah. People use that to give something a, an organic quality now. They, that, that visual style just kind of permeated the pop culture for a long time. And um, and Machete was born out of it, of odd, you know, the oddest thing that could happen. Yeah, I know, totally. You never know. <laughs> you just never know. So you almost can't make a bad move. You just have to move forward yeah. with an instinct. And it might not go the way you want, but it's usually for the better.
0: And was there one of you you mentioned this earlier, how, like, sure, they came to you with, like, early incarnations and scripts that needed development of, like, X-Men and Superman and stuff like that. Like, giving you... Mainly,
1: mainly, not because I, am like, was super talented, but because they saw that I was so inexpensive. They go, let's take him the franchise first, because right. he knows how to make a movie really inexpensively, really fast. And let's take in these franchises that maybe he can help us
0: fix up. Interesting. Know? So, it was it was were any of those close to your heart? And if you had the autonomy and the ability to do it the way you wanted to do it, that you would have grabbed. Like, was there a comic growing up or one of those that was like, you know, if. if because I know like Red Sonya, for instance was there for a while were mm-hmm. others like that that kind of
1: there know? were some that were enticing but then you would look at them closely and they always came attached with like a, they somehow they had some producer on there that had been on there for a long time that was notorious for going over budget and for going big and and you knew you would just be working for somebody yeah. so you kind of you tried it you try to get in there and talk about it um, and then something in your gut would tell you that's not the way to go and so you'd back off and go make one of your own things instead but there mm-hmm. were always really Seductive and surprising because yeah. you went, is this my move now? Is this the move I should make? You try to feel it out, and then it rarely felt right. There was even one time I was doing a movie with Steven Spielberg. You know, I was doing Zorro with him, and the studio, was just, in the studios, there were two studios working on it. And they just weren't um, aligned in thinking. It was one of those that inherited two studios, which is the last thing you want. One studio is enough, and there's two. And one studio would say, don't listen to those guys. They don't know what they're talking about. And the other studio would say, don't listen to to Spielberg's guys. They don't know what they're talking about. It was ridiculous. So I I got to work with Spielberg all through the pre-production. And then he had to go make another movie. I thought this is the time to leave because <laughs> I already got I already I got, got, got to my live my experience. experience. Oh my god! <laughs> got my some stories. home movies he shot of me and my kid together. I was like, oh my god, he even got a home movie
0: out of it. Amazing! That's pretty cool. One, one aspect of, of filming—I I feel like you enjoy probably all of the aspects. So you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but I feel like casting is something that you revel in, and you've—you've you've, you've taken some big chances, especially in films like the Machete films. Um, oh right, right. Yeah. And and I kind of enjoy like I mean you know uh, I feel like you know back in the day we call it stunt casting, but when you take a risk on someone like. Tar Charlie, uh, Sheen, yeah. or Mel Gibson, people that frankly have had their image kind of like screwed up for a variety of mm-hmm. reasons, or even Lady Gaga, who's a much different kind of category. Um, is it fair to say that like you approach casting, you think from a, a different stand- standpoint than others do? Or what do yeah, you think? Yeah, it's funny that
1: you mention that. You know, what other people would call stunt casting, that's just my regular casting. Right. I'm always just casting people that I just, are big fans of and that I uh, honestly want to work with. And I think that's why they take on my projects, you know, because they, they can tell that I'm truly a fan of their work and want to work with them and respect them in that way so um, I usually think it's just about anybody because they, they they know it's not a studio talking or somebody just being weird it's really a filmmaker who's a big fan of their work and I can they know it because they've probably met me over the years I'm sure. always telling them how much I, I love their stuff and um, and that's how I you know I, I kind of pair them up to the, to the project I, right. I really have a list going beforehand of okay I'm just gonna figure out how to work with this person and really I, I'm reading the script and then I, I see that person somewhere and I go, oh, that, that's the person I've always wanted to work with. And they match the, the character. And I'm going to even enhance the
0: character for them. Is is Gaga also in Sin City? She might be. <laughs> <laughs> what is, uh, how would you assess her acting? Self? She's really City-ish. terrific. Yeah. She's really
1: terrific. I mean, she comes in and um, you may have a part that you go, okay, this could be. It's not quite a local, I mean, I could cast a local actor sure. in it. It's not quite something you'd bring someone in on, um, but we could. But, hmm, Lady Gaga's on tour in Houston. <laughs> so she could come over here and do this and knock it out of the park and knocks it out of the park. And you're like, wow, she's really studied acting yeah. and knows how to perform and knows how to make a moment out of something. Yeah. So she's really, you know.
0: Shockingly good. So, really if surprising. she if she wasn't in Sin City, would there have been a give and take? Would she have given notes on the kind of part she wanted to <laughs> do, or would you have said, "This is what I know." Oh, I would right. have said,
1: "This is what you, your your part is. um I like to play it kind of like this." She loves direction, and she goes, "I can I can do that." And how about if I do this and this and this? it's nice. perfect. Let's go shoot it. And then the other actors are like. She's really good I mean she's really good You
0: know things like yeah, that Yeah I think, I think uh, Actually well, I think Joe Actually confirmed it for Joe me confirmed because, like, Yeah it. He, did, he told me That she was actually Really good Yeah um, uh, In our last remaining moments Because I know you're Running around um, Talking about uh, El Rey And, and from Dusk Till Dawn We've got a little Grab bag of questions You want to grab one or sure, two Sure yeah. Dig in Let's see here One from
1: the top okay. Is it for me to read? Yeah,
0: read it out. We'll do what we got. If we hate it, we'll, we'll skip it. The most
1: interesting person in the world is? Oh, boy. What do
0: you think, Robert? Is this for me to yeah. answer? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't have the answers.
1: The most interesting person in the world is? Oh, hold on a i I'm come back to that. Okay. What's your favorite article of clothing? <laughs> Those are both kind of tough. I don't, I kind of, I'm talking about somebody who wears the same thing over and over. So right. This jacket, it's cool on the outside. I mean, feel the that leather. Yeah. That's real? But it's even cooler on the inside. Oh, look at this, oh, Super Super, Superman, Superman bed sheets inside. So you turn it inside <laughs> out and you can and you sleep <laughs> on it. On the plane, it looks because they do sleep with it inside out on the plane, and it looks like I'm a little kid with <laughs> Superman sheets on the plane. Amazing. Let's, let's, let's do one more. Let's finish strong. Most interesting people in the world. That's a hard one. That is tough. Beard or mustache? God, I gotta go with a gotta go with a Magnum PI. <laughs> These are all really cool. Zombies or vampires?
0: zombie vampires <laughs> <laughs> coming soon to season two. I'm <laughs> from Dust Still Gone. Both. Uh, perfect time to end it. Um, Robert, thanks so much for stopping by. Absolutely. my, my so. weird little funny. office. Um, congratulations it's a on big the office. Y'all can't see, but the thing goes on and on. Not really. I'm just squatting in someone else's <laughs> office. No, <laughs> it's mine. Uh, good to see you, buddy. Good
1: to see you.